Last time on Quest for Power, we followed Odoacer and his meteoric rise to the King of Rome, all of a sudden to be cut down by Theodoric and a straight cut to the neck. This is the Quest for Power. Welcome to the Quest for Power. We are ranking and reviewing all of the European monarchs from the early Middle Ages to World War I. So we're joining us once again, Scott and Michael. And like I said in the intro, we are going to be covering Theodoric or Theodoric. Depends on where you want to put the emphasis on the different <laughs> syllables. And we had kind of an interesting uh, dual uh, rulership for however brief of a time before uh, Odoacer got his uh, all of all of five end. days was it? Not long, less than a month. Yeah, I don't really feel like then, a joint rulership at that. I, yeah, time. I, I don't know if I count that one as a joint rulership. On paper, it was. <laughs> yep, it's kind of an interesting story on how this guy is kind of lauded as the king of italy yeah and did did some impressive stuff but ultimately it kind of felt like kind of uh hmm, maybe flat a little bit but i think that's yeah. just because he kind of had such a horrible end <laughs> i think yeah he did pretty good stuff it's just the ending was not great at all and caused by the guy we have today, so he like uh, many before, like many episodes before the uh, the say the way of one episode, and then the subsequent episode is a uh, the traitor who who caused yeah, the untimely demise. Exactly. Oh, yeah. but it's really kind of nice because after this one, we're kind of calming down a little bit. We're going to be sitting in the Ostrogothic kingdom for a while. I mean, we just went through four kingdoms in a row, and this is the fourth one. So that uh, we're, we're finally done with that little roller coaster. Now we're going to jump on the Gothic train. So we'll see how well that goes. Of the Austro variety, yes. not the Vizzy variety. Nope, that is correct. I'd ask you how you've been, but we literally just recorded. So. <laughs> That's right. This is a back-to-backer. So this is a pretty good, uh, just kind of a jam session to, uh, you know, talk about some of this. But I think it's pretty good because we had such a... It feels like that these... Um, monarchs are pretty closely tied together anyways. yeah that that's it's it's it kind of flows really nicely you have like o odoacers and he kind of ends rome and then you have like there's a little middle where the two are fighting and then you have theodoric's rise to power who like tries to recreate rome in kind of a sense you'll see later on and that's great <laughs> yes he's yes, Theodor theodoric and it, sa it sounds pretty great yep so like most of our kings we have a lot of the same kind of sources procopius we have jordanias uh, or jordanes as we have called him and uh he is uh 
he's writing for gothic audiences so this one's pretty blatant like the the source he's doing like theodoric is called the great but it's up to us to guess if it's because of the propaganda if he's actually great or if he actually was and then as we discussed way back i want to say alaric's episode i think is the only time we discussed this is Jordanius is writing off of Cassiodorus, and the reason that's important is Cassiodorus just happened to be Theodoric's master of offices, or the head scribe, if you will. Okay. So, on to the main quest. Today, you are in the presence of Flavius Theodoricus the Great, Kingslayer king of italy and the ostrogoths Woo. so theodoric originally named as dietrich didn't know that one before i started researching was born in 454 or around there he is the son of an ostrogothic king theodomir and one of his many concubines king is a very generous term I think that the um, people at the time, like, miss. I think it's a mistranslate because whatever, I think they, the way they have it is it's close to Rex. And Rex in Italian, in not Italian, kind of Italian, in Latin is for king. So I think that's why a lot of these tribal leaders are called kings when really they're just really hot well just that tribal leaders they're not you know there's not these massive kingdoms they have well you know king is a uh can be a little bit I guess subjective king of the who yeah <laughs> yes exactly according to jordanes he descends from the amal family which was of royal gothic bloodline since ancient times Many historians change this little fact, so it may be complete nonsense, but with the rule of cool, um, we'll say it happened. Alright. Rewriting history. Yeah, maybe we should get a roll of the dice in, in proper D&D &D fashion, and uh, that's how we'll de declare if something happened or not. We can't be doing much worse than real historians. <laughs> I mean, no, you really can't. At eight years old, he was sent to Constantinople, which is the capital seat of the Eastern Roman Empire, as a hostage to guarantee his father's compliance with a treaty between the Romans and the Goths. Another kid who's like, uh, who, whose dad's like, I, I, I do love you, kid, honestly, but I'm going to send you under the threat. I'm going to threaten your life to... Uh, make an agreement here oh boy yeah real loving family <laughs> yeah so in constantinople i imagine the romans are uh you know they're they they meet him or whatever and they bend down like as a as a you know an adult would to a kid and go hey what's your name and he replied in a very kid tone my name is Dietrich and the Romans laughed and went your name is what and he went Dietrich and uh they went you know Dietrich that that not that doesn't work for us honestly 
not really a fan of that name. It's 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 pretty barbaric, if wow. you will. I I think we'll call you. What can we call him? Your name is actually Theodoric. How Just would another you... name to add to the TH pile? Exactly. How would you like that as eight years old to uh, have to change your name all of a sudden? That would be so confusing. Well, I mean, he's got a job to do, so. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Be uh, be uh, hostage, I guess, is a uh, is a job. Yeah. Um, Another way this could have gone down is he could have been bribed with, like, a toy chariot. You know, like, give a kid something. Like, hey, we want to give you a nickname. And uh, kind of like yeah. I was, I was bribed with a, uh, a Jeff Gordon race car to get the nickname Red, which even my wife calls me, along with most of my friends. So, so you that's know. that's all it takes, huh? That's all it takes sometimes. It's just, like, a toy chariot or a, or a toy car. <laughs> Back on Duly topic. noted. <laughs> Back on topic. In the court of Constantinople, he was educated in Greco-Roman traditions for 10 years under the supervision of Emperor Leo I and later Emperor Zeno, who both took a liking to the young goth. This kid's got spunk. Yeah, yeah, he does. He's a little feisty, I guess. I don't know. I don't know what... What would make you like him? I don't know. As a as a good as a Roman, unless it was. I just... mean, if you're an emperor, you probably just like want someone that's entertaining. Yeah. Well, I think also they may have been like father figures, and maybe he was like a son-like figure to them, since he was growing up in their court, quite literally. Yeah. Uh, like uh, teach the barbarian out of him, kind of thing. Yeah. Yep. And uh, speaking of which, despite being in one of the most revered and, you know, educational royal courts in Europe, he never learned to read or write. He will go on to promote it and everything like that, but he could never read or write. I wonder if he just wasn't allowed. That, that, yeah, that could be, that very well could be. Um, despite not being able to read or write, he uh, was very Roman and sophisticated, and he would like continue that sophistication, like throughout his life. To make an example, he really enjoyed uh, what you enjoy—philosophy and philosophical um, discussions. Debate. Yeah. yeah, debates. All right. Yeah, I can respect that game. I mean, you don't have to read or write to really study philosophy. Correct. Sort of helps though. I have to. Yeah, it it does help. But again, if you're you know you know you're at the court of Constantinople, you are you are probably taught so many things orally that you know, intellectual, yeah, debate. He must have impressed the Romans, uh, despite just being their hostage, because in 483 he was made master of soldiers, which is again the head military person under Zeno, and he was elected consul. Consul was the position in the Roman Republic that this gave the power of a king. So like a power of a dictator, but only for one term. And by the time it, you know, the Dark Ages have rolled around, it was an honorary title given to someone that basically said this person has a lot of power. All right. If I you mean, want to dumb it down. 
for being a hostage kind of situation that's pretty good pretty impressive and uh in this he fights he finds himself fighting on behalf of the romans against another ostrogothic king also named theodoric (laughs) Mm. but he had the unfortunate moniker of the squinter because he had something bad eyesight because he had something like a lazy eye. It's not because he was no. squinting, but it was more of it's a it's a condition that you can have. Okay. And uh, I don't think it is directly lazy eye. I I think it is something of that sort. So pretty straightforward story, right? So far, we uh, he grows up being a goth for a little bit, gets sent off to Constantinople, gets a um, elevated education, if you will. And then joins and becomes a Roman soldier. All right. It's at this point, uh, his life gets a little muddy. And this entire next set of events could be an entire TV series from the years of 474 to 488. During this time, there is a complex web of stories of alliances betrayal murder and court intrigue that happens over this time that involve our theodoric's fact the the greats faction and the squinters faction along with the eastern empire and then their web of troubles as well which we will get onto in later episodes so it's this complex mess that is going on in that area that he is embroiled in and the eastern emperor zeno is trying to play the goths against each other as he will again later do between uh uh as we learned last episode theodoric and odoacer and uh but this time he's actually pulling the puppet strings quite well so that like no one goth becomes too powerful and he is also, on top of trying to balance, you know, playing puppet master, he's also dealing with rebellions from within his own faction in the Empire. So, things aren't going great for Zeno. He's He's got a lot on his plate. And, uh, when I, and the two factions are vying for support of, essentially, Daddy Emperor. <laughs> and whenever... daddy zito never like didn't give him enough tension or didn't restore enough uh favors on him or restore too much favors on their uh, opponent they would just start pillaging and looting and basically throwing a temper tantrum across the empire's lands so the empire's lands was being ravaged from um either the one goth the squinters faction or the greats faction (laughs) <laughs> all right you got this straight yet uh, well we'll cross that bridge when we get to it all right and for a while Zeno was playing the two factions against each other really well but that's not sustainable and in around 484 the squinter fell off his horse and onto a spear his spear or- uh, a, I don't know a spear 
I w- right. if if that's true, I wonder if that's like if it fell on like a gothic soldier who was marching like next to Heinem, and now you have a gothic soldier holding a bloody spear with the squinter's you know body on it, and he's going, "Look, this is not what it looks like." I swear to God, he fell off his horse. Yeah, you know, I mean, please tell them, Peter. <laughs> I mean, I'd like to think that other people would see that. Like, yeah, you would like to think that. But I wonder I, I if Horses that's just get a, spooked. So they like, do. You, they, they could do. run. They could have stopped and thrown him forward into like, you know, an enemy spear in a battle or. Yeah. yeah could be literally anything. And yeah. I I want I wonder if it's like a euphemism that got mistranslated because I don't know. That's just that's a weird little story to include on how he vanished. Anyway. Regardless of how it happened, Squinter is no more, and he is replaced by his son, Rykatich. Rykatak? Rykatak. Or Resatach? Resatach. I'm going to go with Resatach. Okay, whatever uh, floats your boat. Anyway. Instead of propping up Resitach, Zeno showered Theodoric with honors, as we discussed earlier. So that consulship and the Magister Militum was actually right now is when he received it. And he received it basically in an agreement between him and Zeno that he's going to go murder Resitach. And then that way, for Zeno, he only has one problem one gothic problem on his to-do list he's got enough problems to deal with right now ain't that the truth more so, uh subjects more problems yeah and uh but he wasn't thinking very ahead on this or i don't know if what he thought would happen to rice attaches warriors but uh since uh Theodoric was quite successful, and he did murder Rysatach. Uh, He received all of Rysatach's gothic warriors. So now, instead of dealing with two warring factions, he essentially had to deal with a super faction. <laughs> Just the, uh, it's the uh, honor system, I guess. <laughs> you bested <laughs> me, or you bested our leader. Guess, uh, <laughs> guess we're uh, part of your band now. Yeah, I, uh, I that one's kind of weird to me, but but again, the way barbarian loyalties did, you were not loyal to your um like your kingdom or your faction because like that's just what happens. It's more of an agreement between you and whoever it is that you are supporting. Yeah. So that's the difference between, like, if there's a goth and a vandal, is that, you know, a vandal warrior did it, you know, submitted himself to a, a vandal chieftain and a gothic, vice versa. But they could be the same, uh, quote, like, uh, genetic makeup. And oh, yeah. uh, that's why it's kind of confusing, because the Romans don't understand that. Because, you know, for Rome, it is, you know, you are either Roman or you are not. Boy. What a, what a black and white picture. Yeah. Because I'm sure all Romans are, you know, very, like, all share the exact same ancestry, right? Yeah. Oh, no. But they, they would classify you if you were, you know, a 
a horsey person, an equestrian, or if you were a plebeian, or if you were a patrician. So I guess they classified it that way, but that's class, like, that's a caste yeah, that's, system, essentially. <laughs> the way you sounded made it sound like horse person. I'm like, we are not having people who are descended from horses. <laughs> no, no, the, no, the equestrians. Yeah. It's, uh, they're called that because they had horses. That's, yeah, yeah, <laughs> not not descended from horses, right? <laughs> no, no, not descended from horses. Uh, that they're not. Uh, oh, who is that down the down the line? A Russian empress. Um, Catherine is it Catherine the Great? Yeah, yeah. Who has some some interesting things with horses? Oh, anyway, would, supposedly, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway. Since Zeno had to give Theodoric something to do, because Theodoric gets kind of violent when he's bored, so Zeno, luckily for him, or unluckily for him, had an eastern general by the name of Illus who started a revolt against Zeno. So Zeno sent Theodoric's idle hands against Illus. And Theodoric went over to Illus and uh, destroyed him. Made really quick work. And then he marched back to Constantinople and being like, I am bored. <laughs> or he, and he is having the same problem as Alaric I. He has a kingdom, but no land. And he feels, and his goths feel, that they deserve land because they've been fighting on behalf of the empire. And he is demanding to be officially recognized as king by the emperor. Which makes sense. Your fight, I mean, the Empire's been telling them for so long, you know, you get land as long as you fight for us or whatever, and then they're not following through. I, I'd destroy a couple of stuff as well if uh, you're not going to give me a place to stay. <laughs> yeah. All this feels like is him just giving, uh, or sorry, Zeno giving uh, Theodoric, like, you know, bones to chew on, or like, yeah. Uh, it makes me think of this, like, this. Uh, meme i saw of like these uh weights ankle weights intended for like toddlers and they're like yeah that's great until your toddler gets like super jacked and now can like <laughs> <laughs> now can kill you with a single kick i love that one i have never seen that meme but i could yelp that's a perfect analogy for this it's like yeah you made yeah you just kind of just made your problem worse by giving this man the tools he needs to succeed against you yeah also like these little fights and stuff that he's been doing he's getting like battlefield experience exactly. you can That's you can get all the training, training in the world but he's yeah he's doing the weight training and uh also like his men are pressuring him to get this land because even if they win they're still losing men in these battles even if you're dominant some people some of your men are still gonna die and you're losing supplies as well i mean war is not cheap war ain't free and Zeno, for some reason, decided to not give his attack dog any food. And that would prove to be a mistake. Theodoric, now the most powerful military general in the area, and he knew it, which is even more dangerous. And he grew up in Constantinople, so he knows their weak spots. And he knows how to, you know, strate strategize against them. I'm sure this will work out really well for the Romans. Yes, yeah. 
and uh, he he did what the Goths do best. best uh, and he did what the Goths do best, whether they're Visigoths or Ostrogoths. When they don't get their way, like Alaric, the first before him. Break stuff. Yep, he began a systematic path of destruction through Alaric's old hunting grounds, the Balkans, and the lands all around Constantinople. Alright. And he was well aware that he was not going to break through the three sets of Constantinople's famous walls. And, uh... The emperor knew that he could not drive Theodoric from the empire's lands, so they needed to come to some sort of agreement. Otherwise, this little destructive stalemate that's going on is just going to burn both sides' resources and cause both sides major headaches. Yeah, although I always thought that they could have just, like, you know, did the um, pillaging and, you know, kind of, like, raiding the lands and feeding off the lands i mean eventually that'll run dry but you can that's what that's what i mean you can go a good while depending on the swath of your destruction yeah but also if you're enslaving these i mean yeah i guess if you're if you're enslaved if it depends if you're enslaving these people and selling off your slaves or if you're pressing them into work and tilling the lands for you um they didn't really go i know that there is a lot of enslaving in this period i don't know if he was necessarily doing that but i'm gonna guess that he was because everyone was doing it it was all the rage it was all the rage whether you were roman or goth gotta enslave one side or the other once again, a problem and a solution popped up for Zeno at the same time. Kind of nice for him. As we discussed uh, a few hours ago, um, <laughs> or for those two, for those uh, listening, probably two weeks ago, uh, our last king, Odo Acer, was uh, in Italy, and he was getting a little too independent for Zeno's liking. He wasn't a fan of Odo Acer you know making his own decisions you mean like the ones he was making from the very get-go yeah exactly (laughs) but now he's having a little problem with it now that you know he he's got a little more land he's got more warriors Uh, he's starting to irritate me so Zeno went to Theodoric or Theodoric went to Zeno we have no idea who proposed this and Zeno basically said, look, if you get rid of Odoacer, you can have Italy. And then in Zeno's mind, that probably is like, all right, that way, again, I can push that problem down the road. Let one kill the other, and then I'll just, you know, wipe out the other one after they oh. take each other out. Yeah, that's all the way over in Italy. Yeah. It's or, a long distance. Or it's like let them weak each other so that way it is all over in it all the way over in Italy and then they won't come up to Constantinople. Yeah, I feel like that's the bigger picture. Is yeah, yeah they'll hopefully they'll just be happy over there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, because essentially one will just replace the other in his mind. Yeah, as long as they stay over there and they're not you know entirely opposed to me. Yeah, yeah it's fine. Yeah. So a lot of this information that we're about to go through is going to be um, very similar to last episode. But we were looking through Theodoric's, uh, not Theodoric's, we were looking that through Odo Acer's lenses, you know, like the filter for him. Now we are going to look through it through Theodoric's point of view. 
And also, repetition's good for the memory, so we'll all get A's on the test. That's right. We didn't tell you guys there was a test? Yeah. Quick question. <laughs> when did Rome officially fall? <laughs> uh, hotly contested. <laughs> yeah. Either 15-something or 476. Yeah. Depending Same. on who you agree with. In 488, Theodoric launches his offensive and he leaves a path of destruction as the Goths do in his wake. He uh, first feels a little bit of resistance from uh, a group called the Gepids at Vuka River. And the, they were no match. Theodoric's man just ran right through them. They were quickly slaughtered. No, probably houses set on fire, all their stuff taken. And what's unfortunate is we don't know whether these people were fighting on behalf of Odoacer or they could have just been, you know, there were... Just happened wrong place, wrong time. Yeah, exactly. They are just like, you know, there's invaders coming and uh, I'm going to defend my home. And uh, on August 28th, 489, he achieves his first victory against Odoacer at Isono Bridge, and this causes Odoacer to flee to Verona. So like a hunter tracking his wounded prey, he just continued his path of destruction, <laughs> tailing uh, Odoacer straight to um, Verona. And the two sides once again clash, and... Wow. And once again, the two sides clash about a month later on September 29th, 489, and he is once again victorious, and Odoacer is forced to flee behind his uh, fortified walls in Ravenna. And Theodoric didn't want to expend his resources babysitting Odoacer in Ravenna, so he set up a, a path of destruction and plunder all the way across Italy and into Milan. And uh, here's a little quote from the Gothic historian Herwig Wolfram. Okay. Theodoric's march to Italy seemed destined for a fast and decisive victory. In Milan, which Theodoric captured after Verona, Secular and ecclesiastical dignitaries were welcomed him as the emperor's representative. Even Odoacer's commander-in-chief, Tufa, and large numbers of the defeated army joined the victor. So he must have been thinking, that's it? Man, this campaign's kind of boring. I should have set the difficulty really much higher. Yeah. It's um, kind of a kind of a letdown yeah that's why, yeah. That's why we kind of that's why at least i think yeah that kind of hit on um odoacer's scoring a little bit odoacer's former commander-in-chief tufa surrendered to theodoric and for some reason theodoric trusted tufa enough to go over to ravenna and capture odoacer without bloodshed and for some reason, many sources don't blame him at all for this. And I'm kind of confused as to what's missing. Even though we have the benefit of hindsight on the last episode that he betrayed him, I still would never trust the top general of my opposing army. Yeah, that sounds like uh, you, you, know, you, you can keep him 
with you and maybe uh, help provide some advice. But this guy's on like under lock and key. Yeah, I I don't understand that. There's got to be something we're missing there, or he just rolled a nat twenty on a deception check, and it turned out to be a D and D campaign. Yeah, or he really did have a change of heart. That is that is possible, but I don't know. Anyway, my guess best guess is the Gothic writers covering this event just kind of gloss over it, and that's why historians no longer be like, yeah, it, that's that we don't think it. We blame him for that decision. So it must be the way alliances worked back then or something. I, I Not getting it. Anyway, as we discussed last episode, Tufo was playing the role of a double agent perfectly to cost the most damage. He arrived to Ravenna and then immediately switched sides with his men and slaughtered Theodoric's top forces, which pushed Theodoric on the back foot. And now the war dragged on. So he went from, oh, this is easy, to, oh, crap. So I wonder if this was like a DLC for the campaign. It was, no, it was just a, uh, it was just round two. Oh, that's it. Gotcha. And uh, we went into the details of the war a bit more closely last episode, but Theodoric has a lot more life to him than Odoacer, so we're going to have to kind of skim this over and go a little quicker, if you will. Odoacer sallied out of Ravenna, and then he pinned Theodoric in modern-day Pavia, Italy. Theodoric's son-in-law, the Visigothic king, or I should say future son-in-law, the Visigothic king, Alaric II, came to the rescue of Theodoric and forced Odoacer to lift a siege. And from there, Theodoric pushed Odoacer all the way back to Ravenna, set up a siege, and then eventually a blockade to stop supplies coming in from the estuaries that are around ravenna yeah so there's a lot of brutal fighting across italy between the two sides between tufa who is commanding odoacer's forces outside of ravenna and he is like constantly harassing theodoric's forces my best guess is that he is doing textbook guerrilla warfare odoacer uh yeah correct it, well, Tufa on uh, Odoacer's yeah. behalf. It could be. Or that they just know the turf better than... That is possible. Um, unfortunately for Odoacer, but fortunately for Theodoric, Tufa was killed in August 491, but the war dragged on till February 25th, 493. Finally... Ravenna's Bishop John got both sides together to have a ceasefire and then form a treaty that would make them joint rulers in Italy. How nice. Yeah. It works out really well. Right? Oh, yes. Yeah, exactly. On March 15th, as we discussed last episode, there was a wonderful feast to celebrate the end of the war and these two factions coming together for peace. <clears throat> However, Theodoric had some leftover rage from the war that was still not extinguished. So, during dinner, he drew his blade and cut down Odoacer and then taunted his dead body like a 12-year-old on Call of Duty. And uh, it took me, when I was researching this, only now to realize that this had to have occurred on March 15th, which is 
the Ides of March and the same date as the assassination of Julius Caesar to usher from the Roman Republic to the Roman Empire. So it's kind of kind of interesting because like Theodoric creates like a virtual uh, Gothic Empire. So I don't know if it was the sources trying to mirror them or if it actually did happen. And, you know, coincidences happen all the time in history that mean nothing. After slaying his nemesis, Theodoric executed Order 66. All of Odovacher's, Odoacer's followers and their families were hunted to extinction. His wife was stoned to death or starved to death, depending on which source you believe. His brother was used as target practice by Theodoric's archers in a church. And his son was at first exiled and then he was killed on re-entry into Italy. That is how you earn some high infamy points is wipe out an entire line family of line. Yeah, family line and their followers, like any existence. No uh no family tree. Yeah, no. So now Theodoric cleaned his hands, went, well, that's done. He cleared all trace of Odoacer's existence, and he set about securing the throne through alliances, which is what you need to do when you are pretty much usurping the throne. And what he is trying to do with these alliances is flip the historical script. It's like he's trying to create the Germanic barbarian empire that is on the ashes of the Western Roman Empire. Well, the remnants of the Western Roman Empire and government are still there and functioning. Exactly. But he wants to rule very different than what the Romans did. And that is probably why he is called the Great, as we will continue to get into. All right. uh, his uh, He led by example for his family members on alliances. And in 493, shortly after mo- murdering Odoacer and anyone associated with him, he married the Frankish king Clovis I, sisters Autofleta, and this secured parts of modern-day France and Germany, at least, you know, ties with that. Mm-hmm. And then in 494, he married off his daughter Theodegotha to the Visigothic king Alaric II, and this tied him to southern France in the Spanish Peninsula, so he's got that covered. And then two years later, he had a lot of weddings to go to. Um, in four Plenty 90- of parties. Yeah, but also he has to marry a lot of his daughters and sisters off, so that's a lot of dowries he has to pay. It's, it's a lot of dowries. That is a lot of dowries. That's That can't be cheap. Around 496, his daughter... Ostrogotha was wedded to the Burgundian king Sigismund and through this alliance he he gained parts more parts of France and maybe Germany. The Burgundians I want I think their their kingdom kind of shifted all the time and from what I could tell they were like in um southeastern France was okay. where they were mainly had. That can't be her name. Ostrogotha of the Ostrogoths. That'd be, that'd be like naming their daughter Americana, although... It'd be like naming your other daughter Theo de Gotha. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> that's true. 
that think is we're, true. They just were just running short on names here. Yeah. Besides, what's he gonna do? He can't like write down new names. He can't read or write. <laughs> yeah, that's true. And all of his hard work of building his this web of alliances paid off. In 497, he was officially recognized as king of the Ostrogoths and Romans by the successor of Zeno, Anastasius I. Look at that. And it all dreams do come true. They do. And notice how Rome still has a foothold in this region. We are in the year like around 500 and they still are dictating what's going on in italy i feel like some of it's just like them respecting like rome more than like rome actually being able to do yeah i mean or the or like they they're holding that illusion up yet still yeah that's what i'm thinking yeah it's easier to you know not have to mess with them at all exactly yeah just get their recognition and be done with it yeah and then in the year 500, he secured Africa by marrying his sister Amalafrida to the Vandala king Thrasimund, which, if you remember how well that one went. Oh, yeah. <laughs> At this point, he pretty much now has ties to pretty much everything in the once mighty Roman Empire except for Britannia and Eastern Empire portion. Pretty impressive. Even though if he didn't conquer the lands himself, he at least is tying himself to it mm-hmm. and uh next important thing in kingdom building is building your court who you surround yourself with as we discussed in geyserich's episode that's right it's all about uh it's all about who you're working with it is i mean your advisors do more of the work for your kingdom than you do so if your huh. advisors suck no matter how good of a king you are you probably not going to do well well that's kind of like the to uh, a modern day equivalent would be like how our government or our representative senators are greatly influenced by their clerks right yes yeah whatever they present to them is whatever they got so they're biased on one thing or another then or that's going to greatly determine how things are done yeah exactly or uh what's uh in special interest groups and stuff like that like they, they still have that you know people coming up to the courts trying to lo- lobbyists you yeah. know they would still have lobbyists i'm sure lobbying is you know as old as time it turns out arguing for uh something you want is <laughs> it's a pretty human experience yeah timeless exactly. timeless yes exactly and uh, he also, like Geyserich, uh, can kind of fill this court of men of all nationalities. He went one step further than Geyserich. He really tried to get as a diverse group of people in his court. And unlike the old empire, he strived to treat his subjects equally and not just favor his own people over the others. Pretty revolutionary during this day and age. Yeah, you got the, um, the, the the today's corporations can take a lesson from the uh, yes for their diversity. Um, yeah, yep. Diversity training. <laughs> yeah. In five twelve, he issued the Edicum Theodoricae, and these edicts 
reformed earlier laws that he made and basically went, all right, maybe I'm not making it clear. Everybody in this kingdom has the same rights under the law. Again, this seems unremarkable to us right now, but this is, you know, co cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs at the time. This is revolutionary, breaking a lot of boundaries. And even after this, throughout the Middle Ages, even through the Renaissance and antiquity, your level of punishment for a crime depended on your status, your ties to the royal family, and your wealth. So if you're a peasant and you stole something, you might get your head chopped off. Versus if you're a noble and you kill a peasant, well, you might just have to pay a little bit to that peasant's family. You know, tit for tat. Exactly. And he is trying to do away with that. And the, the reason I believe this, and it's not just, you know, propaganda, is I don't think George... Danias would have want or any of his contemporaries would have looked at this favorably this is not normal behavior yeah i think that honestly apart from you know it may or may not be popular with some people but i think the other one is that it's easier to administer laws and stuff mm -hmm. you don't need to worry about people like you know having identities and stuff you just go yep you did xyz you get xyz yes yeah you know Wipe your hands off, of you know, and go on to the next job. Yeah, that's true. Yep. And then even though he himself could not read or write, he uh, promoted education and literacy among the members of his court. So he, he, I, he even may have, it doesn't say, but he, he may have, you know, tried to keep reading or writing, but just couldn't. Or, you know, he had enough on his plate and he's like, you know what, I, I'm going to delegate that to other people, but... I wish I could have done that, so I'm going to promote that. He's living, um, um, he, he's living through his, his court. Yeah, yes, exactly. And then he also um, enjoyed philosophical discussion, and he kept the philosopher, phil philosopher Boethius at court, um, kind of probably to entertain him, to, uh, yeah. you know, have discussions Intellectual. with him intellectual stimulation yeah and uh he he employed many of his subjects also in the construction of new buildings and the restoration of existing ones he began repairing and creating new aqueducts which is very impressive for these times and huge for his subjects Aqueducts are not simple feats of engineering, so the fact that he was able to figure that out, or at least get the right people to figure that out, is pretty damn impressive. Um, especially because at that time, even some of the you know the emperors and their um, their uh, government couldn't do that; they just let it decay. So the fact mm. that he was able to restore it's pretty awesome. And then in Rome, Ravenna, Verona, and Pavia, he restored public baths, rebuilt city walls, restored palaces to their former glory. The palaces were converted from residents of the elite to public buildings for his administration. So he's really kind of changing things up. It's it, it's it, this is why he is this. The boring stuff is why he is called the Great, not because of his battles. His early policies towards religion and most pretty much his entire reign until um, an annoying Justinian gets involved. Uh, he promotes 
religious tolerance. And he went more than just to, to promote tolerance. He made it clear that like every religious belief, and I'm going to guess as long as it wasn't pagan, was of equal value. And he seemed to talk, walk a tight rope with the neighboring kingdoms who had different religious beliefs um, to prevent, you know, religious wars from breaking out. Yeah. Probably the religious tolerance was you know, just literally because of trying to manage all of these different groups. Yeah, correct. So I could respect it. Yeah. Yep. And despite, unfortunately, though, despite his web of alliances and, you know, his prudent kingship, it wasn't all roses for him during his reign. If you remember in our episode nine, his brother-in-law Clovis the first killed his son-in-law Alaric the second. Yep. <laughs> that is what happens when you start marrying your families off to different kingdoms. <laughs> yeah. I well, that's what I was thinking about this whole time. I was like, I'm like, yeah, I know that the the, the Franks can kind of wipe out the Visigoths a bit. So. Yep. Yep. They do. And uh, to make this more complex and ridiculous, remember back in episode 13, his other brother-in-law, Thrasimund, was too lazy to provide him assistance against the Eastern Empire, and that didn't let him save Alaric II. So his family uh, did not do him any favors, besides Alaric II, and he couldn't save him. <laughs> in-laws, man. <laughs> I love my in-laws. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Big disclaimers is what I'm is what I'm hearing you say. All right. Oh man. Moving uh, on before before you uh, before you dig yourself a pit. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and that kids the messy web of in-laws is why the Romans just went screw it and marched all over Europe and conquered it through Roman legions and logistics and not flimsy marriage alliances. That's right. That's why we don't do marriage alliances anymore. <laughs> Could you imagine that if presidents would like marry um, like uh, prime ministers, uh, like kids and um... stuff like that to create alliances? That Sounds would be like... that would be interesting and kind of kind of weird. Yeah, it's kind of a weird thing by today's standards. Yeah, it is, but it's like just so accepted when you're, you know, in this era. Well, that's uh, you know, different times, different places. Yeah. And uh, because having one family member turn against you isn't enough, the Burgundians, who should be allies at this point, you know, he married also off to them. And they looked at his, some of his land in Italy and went, ooh, shiny, I want that, and then started invading into his domain. So then he had to send his forces to go deal with them and not only push the Burgundians back, and then he punished them more by taking some of their land. I feel like it's uh, almost like a parent. A kid like did something against a parent, and the parent's like, not only am I taking your toy away, but I am also grounding you for a week. How nice. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of kind of that. I mean, he is kind of like the uh, the 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 parent of the 
it really feels that way. Of the barbarian tribes. Or yeah, kingdoms. it really. If it, it feels like he's like, guys, can we just not get along? Like, come on here. We had a good thing going here. <laughs> yeah, like, what are you doing? Unfortunately, despite all of his accomplishments in, in his ruling and stuff, he wasn't great in the bedroom, and he was never able to produce a legitimate male heir. So he had to name his grandson, Athalaric, his successor. And Athalaric is the son of the Visigothic prince Eutharic, which I'm sure we will go to when we pick up the Visigoths once again, although he's a prince, so maybe not. And his only legitimate daughter, Amalasuntha. And then in the year 518, he received some news that um, Anastasius I, who he was probably getting a well, pretty well with, they, they weren't bothering each other, uh, died at about 90 years old. Old. that is that is impressive <laughs> especially i mean like even by today's standards if someone yes, lives to be exactly. 90 i'm like man they they mm-hmm. lived exactly yeah also to live like as an emperor until that point Oof. yeah well apparently the stress didn't get to him uh, it could yeah obviously <laughs> not either he just didn't care or like he, he did a great had, job had, yeah and then also uh, news came by that his bodyguard Justin replaced him as emperor. I can't wait till we go to the Byzantines and figure out how that happened. <laughs> like, mm. That's interesting that a bodyguard becomes emperor. Well, probably because no one else wanted the job. Yeah, probably. Yeah, maybe that's why be. he didn't get betrayed or you know backstabbed like, no one's like i'm uh, not yeah. sure if i really want to i don't want that <laughs> yeah, job yeah they finally learned the lesson of like yeah being emperor is not all it's cracked up to be yeah uh, uh <laughs> i don't want that job yeah don't make me well justin um is not justinian but his nephew is a young man named justinian and justin let justinian make important policy decisions and this is when it starts having problems as justinian was a pretty passionate trinitarian christian and hated arianism and believed it to be an actual danger to the true church quote unquote well to his church maybe (laughs) but he's but like theodoric is like for wrong i mean he's not but like oh my god just drives me i mean again gotta look at it in their point of view like it is it is not only life and death it is eternal life or death to get that right so well again if you're passionate well it's also a political body too so yeah yeah it's it's definitely something where you know they're obviously fighting each other over this you i if someone were uh particularly you know because the Aryan. uh christians have been kind of just going nuts on the uh uh, trinitarians at the time so it's not that unreasonable to say yeah these guys are kind of jeopardizing my belief system's existence yeah yeah and uh, although the trinitarians always seem to have the upper hand the Aryans only did when geyseric was around 
otherwise or the vandals in general but once they fell then Arians generally didn't last that long except for the visigoths i believe but they eventually converted as well anyway so justinian directly created policies that persecuted Arians. And Theodoric revoked his policies towards tolerance, basically as an emotional decision, and began purging the Trinitarian Christians in his own kingdom. I'm sure that went over well with uh, the Franks. Yeah, well... Or the Franks were... No, yeah, the Franks, Clovis had converted by that point, so... But also, he can kind of push Clovis around. I mean, Clovis never was able to incur into his own kingdom, and in fact, I think he had he pushed Clovis back. So, all right. And so, anyway, it is at this time that his his health is starting to deteriorate, and in 526, he passes away after 33 hard years as king. It's pretty. Uh, it's a pretty extensive time frame for to be a king. It's known like living to be 90 as emperor, but yeah, it's, it's, his life is kind of crazy. It's, there's the before his reign and then there's the after his reign, Theodoric. The before his reign, Theodoric is like the old angry God in the old Testament, you know, where he's destroying the flooding, the the lands and stuff like that versus the new Testament. God is he's much nicer. (laughs) (laughs) he promotes equality religious tolerance and he's doing his best to stabilize and revitalize the the region it's it's soft in his old age yeah it's it's crazy the minute he was given the throne he just like did a 180 well the minute he gained the throne and killed odoacer i he must have had something against Odoacer to an nth degree that I don't understand. Maybe Odoacer really did kill his friends. The world may never know. Well, anyway, that's all I have for Theodoric the Great. Are you ready to rate him? Yep, let's get to it. Alright. Royal power. Well, he started off as a vulnerable hostage, ended with virtually the same power as a Western Empire. He defeated the Squinter, which was a powerful faction. He defeated Odoacer, as we keep talking about, through treachery and had enough power to execute Order 66. He developed ties across all the major barbarian kingdoms, and he was able to throw his weight around those rival kingdoms. They were not able to incur into his land without consequence. And he was kind of like the dad in the region, yeah. as long as he was in power. And so. the va- and the Vandals are very lucky that he died when they killed his sister. Otherwise, they would have been in a world of pain before Belisarius got to them. <clears throat> so, although it sounded like he was slipping a little bit at the end there, just a touch. With... Uh some of the yeah like, um yeah internal squabbles and in the kingdoms and the um not uh, in his kingdom that? but outside his kingdom yeah well, correct. the kingdoms that he was overseeing i guess yeah so i i'm willing to get pretty generous on this uh so i'm, I'm willing to, to score out a nine 
Yep, same. I don't think he gets a 10, but I, I would have to say a 9. So, easy. 18-pointer. All right, infamy. All right, the biggest one. He took over Odoaster's kingdom through treachery and in front of everybody at a banquet. He murdered in brutal fashion all of Odoaster's family, his followers, and his followers' friends. He killed his brother with, you know, as archery practice, and he was seeking sanctuary, which is a big no-no to, you know, attack someone mm-hmm. in sanctuary. And then he either stoned or starved Odoacers to death. Both are horrific and, you know, cruel. Not fun. And he didn't give Odoacer a proper Christian burial, which in his eyes probably sent him straight to hell. So he hated Odoacer and anything to deal with him, it seemed like. But other than that, like, he was a really... <laughs> pretty tame. Pretty tame king. Yeah. Oh, it's probably like a good, I don't know, like, well, like three. A little infamous, but, you know, not, he's more, he was more tame than anything. Yeah. I say the, uh, the whole, uh, family line elimination, it's a little infamous in that, in the manner in which it was carried out. I'm going to give a five for that because, and just, it, just because it's like, there's the, you know, the uh, Theodoric before he became king and then Theodoric after he became king. So I guess if we're, you know, doing on king, nothing, but, oh, I man. Like it's part of it. I, I'm going to stick with five because, I mean, the what he did, that is just brutal, the way he purged everything to deal with Odoacer. All right, well, a three and a five for an eight. So... With that, we will go to Religious Passion. So, he uh, he helped advance both the Trinitarians and his Aryan church rebuild during this time as well. He pretty much continued Odoacer's work. He promoted and, like, to the nth degree, as much as you could, religious tolerance and when his own faith was attacked by Justinian, he kind of emotionally reacted and attacked back. Yeah. Oh, this this feels less like religious passion and to me and more like things that more line up with I guess the politics of the of the scenario, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I like have like cuz it feels like that the religious uh, that the religious tolerance was um, something that, you know, is more convenient as far as you know, for the politics he's playing because he had to for dealing with different religious groups. Yeah, he might. He probably yeah. believed it. He's not, you know, they the, the sources seem to portray him as a more enlightened king. So whether that's passionate, I could maybe give like a couple points for. But, you know, obviously, and then he takes a hard turn against it for you know when when his faith is attacked so that's some passion you know there like you attack my faith you know now i'm gonna go after you well i i say you can also look at it as that like those um because the uh eastern empire is a faith aligned thing you may consider that like oh a you know trinitarians are like you know put more rogue elements in my yeah. government. Mm, mm-hmm 
That's a good point. I never even thought of that. It it all like to me it's like my tinfoil hat moment, but it kind of lines up politically. It lines up. Cuz like the whole time I'm doing this, I'm like, was he really that good? Like he seems extremely enlightened for this era. Like I, I haven't seen fair. any king like this this enlightened. Um I mean, he's probably got some passion and out of a 10 I'm willing to like splurge a four just because like I think it's like he's got some he's got some chops for religious passion but it feels like to me that the uh that the actions I guess don't really like scream passionate to me yeah part of that is because I'm looking at it through a political lens a little bit and so it feels like that the the religion and politics line up pretty well in my tinfoil hat mode i i agree with you though you that because that, i otherwise i was like why would he do this like the, i mean that's just it's just kind of out of the blue in this era that he does yeah. this all of a sudden i'll have to agree i'll give him a four yeah. as well yeah only risk is that he would risk alienating like the franks yeah so but in any case stability so this section is why he is considered the great and unfortunately for him this doesn't really have the greatest impact on our rating system i think it's one tenth of his total score but affirmative but once he took control he greatly stabilized the region after 33 years of his reign the whole 33 years of his reign was peace for the first time in a long time between the goths and the romans the war between him and Odoacer caused like World War One levels of devastation, but on a smaller scale, and they didn't have to deal with unexploded ordinances. Um, but most we of still deal with, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and and the fields don't look like the moon because of you know they were that bad. Yeah. But they still it was it was not great for the the uh, environment. Many of the forests were cut down either like in the heat of combat, which is impressive without, you know, like actual firearms or the Mm -hmm. use of materials, you know, for defense themselves. Yeah. And as a result, there's no trees soaking up the rainwater. So now in all of the the, his like his domain, there's flash flooding in the region and that causes its own form of destruction mother nature was letting everyone know she was not happy yeah <laughs> <laughs> it turns out we do have an impact on our environment yes and the battles themselves destroyed actually like the topsoil nutrients and despite oh, it gets trampled yeah it gets trampled and uh you know despite a lot of dead bodies probably to help fertilize it i don't it didn't do it enough and uh so he he it was a italy was pretty battered and bruised at this point but theodoric was able to restore the battered lands and uh he kind of did like how we would of today he drained swamps plant trees created irrigation systems and he employed drilling specialists to create wells to boost the the region's water supplies pretty good for being in the so-called dark ages yeah it's kind of a ray of sunshine 
And uh, he restored, as we discussed, many public works of decaying buildings as well as creating new ones in the Italian cities. And I just can't issue enough. Water is so important in civilization and restoring and creating aqueducts is insanity for stability. You need water. So that is just impressive. He promoted the radical concept of equality among all subjects in the court system. And despite inheriting a powder keg of religious, you know, passion going on, he never allowed a spark to hit that powder keg and he diffused the situation by promoting religious tolerance. He stabilized the region around him for a very for a short time, you know, with through the alliances with the major barbarian kingdoms. So, so uh, this was five? his yeah, out of <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So I fives can't, out of fives? Yeah, definitely. <laughs> Easy. All right. Royal demise. He died of natural causes of stress. Pretty much stress. So yeah. zero. Zero. It's about it. I say I say dies of stress. Relatable. Zeros. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Legacy. Easy. Oh, yep. sorry. Legacy. His legacy is kind of, in a way, more impressive than some of the monarchs we've covered that conquer huge swaths of land. And the reason he is well known is because he ruled his people very wisely and, like, had a vision of a united kingdom of separate but equal populations, which is, even today, is kind of, you know... We don't really practice that even. And so that way, no culture was forced to assimilate with the other. They could live together, but they didn't have to, you know, you could still keep your culture the way it is. And the fact that he wasn't able to be completely successful in that in just his reign alone, I can't mark against him for that because I, no nation, I don't think, has done this. U.S. didn't even come close to it. We did assimilation you know, starting day yeah. one. And UK, I'm not British, but they didn't exactly do that either. So, no. <laughs> uh, yeah, so if there is one, I haven't heard of it. Um, and uh, so, you know, that's pretty impressive on its own that he had that vision. And what a crazy different world we would have if he was able to fulfill that vision. Yeah, or if he had successors that would continue the the trend yeah and the mark against him in like his wiseness and stuff is his persecution of trinitarians but that was at the end of his reign and i'm just gonna chalk that up as a reaction to justinian being a douchebag and you yeah. know what fair yeah like hey messing with my people i'll mess with yours yeah he took the ostrogoths from a tiny tribe to a dominating kingdom that had close to the power of the Western Roman Empire. He raised Italy from war-torn ruins to stability, to prosperity, and then to luxury. Also quite impressive. He um, is remembered for trying to create a unified kingdom of independent nationalities living harmoniously. Even Alexander the Great, who a lot of people like point to as someone who did this, didn't give the kind of independence that Theodoric allowed. He really fought for that independence and promoted it big time. And we would have a 
very different Europe and maybe world if that was to come true. Yep. He was buried with full honors at his mausoleum in Ravenna, which actually still stands today. And now I kind of want to go. And uh, <laughs> here's a picture of it. Uh, a very we'll post, nice mausoleum. Post it on uh, Facebook and Instagram. Yeah, yeah, pretty cool. Only how naked... much they like do upkeep on that, you know, to like keep it standing. I wonder. I feel be... like because it looks really good. It was restored at one point because the Eastern Empire comes and desecrates it, as you do. Yeah. And then later it's restored again. So I don't know if they keep restoring it, but it's still pretty impressive. Probably gets maintenance. From, yeah. You know, like the local government or something. Yeah. Yeah. They're kind of neat. The... Yeah, I like that. So anyway, the only negative is he did not produce an heir of age before the end of his death. His kingdom kind of became unstable, and we'll see next episode how well it goes for his successors. Uh, what made him great didn't last, but it made a huge impact on Europe in the future and kind of the identity of Europe. He really... Mm-hmm started making inroads on even if it would fall apart for a little bit well all right man it's uh it's it feels like it's not detracting too much for me i'm i definitely am debating on the nine or the ten you know it feels Mm -hmm. like powerful stuff um feel like i'm gonna go with like just the nine mainly because i feel like that while like it's super you know impressive and all that i think that it's and thankfully yeah or like that the influences you know can sometimes still be you know felt a little bit that yeah he's uh i guess not as ubiquitous he's not like someone that a lot of people are just going to instantaneously recognize yeah i mean but to me legacy is also like how you took your king uh, took something and you built it up you know yeah he took ashes he took nothing he took literally pretty much a little tiny tribe and made it into the biggest powerhouse in italy he took italy which was absolutely destroyed and raised it all the way to luxurious status pretty much and if if we were to simplify it so i'm because of those and yes there are marks against him but i think those way over cover plus the added you know the added in, in, in intellect he had and things like that. I'm gonna I'm gonna give him full marks. I'm gonna go ten out of ten. All right, fair enough. Uh, so a total of nineteen. So, all right. Grand total. We have a total of sixty-three. Oh, well, he beat Odo Acer, which would make him happy. He he, in fact, did beat Odo Acer. <laughs> In real life and in uh, our imaginary pit (laughs) fight. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Uh, Well, Theodoric had quite a life, as we discussed. But that doesn't mean he is, you know, gets a free trip to being a high king. So, should he be crowned as high king, become a minor lord with Odo Acer, or be burned at the stake? I'm going to go ahead and throw out burned at the stake as a no. Yeah, no, I'm willing I to think give him the high, high king. king. Yeah, high king. He was high. He's king. called great for a reason. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, at first when I was researching him, I'm like, he's not really that great. But once you kept digging into like the more in the details of what he did, he deserves the great, in my opinion. Yeah, it's usually the boring stuff that makes you pretty darn good. Mm-hmm. It does. Yeah. So, did you believe that Theodoric deserves the moniker the Great? Um, if you do or don't, message us on Messenger via Facebook and Instagram at Quest for Power, or email us at Quest for Power Pod at Gmail dot com. If you would like to support what we do here. Please leave a review or subscribe on whatever platform you use. We will read all five-star reviews posted to podchaser.com, and uh, the link will be in the show notes. Thank you, as always, for spending your valuable time with us nerds. Next episode, if I can find enough information, and I think I can... We will cover our first queen, Amala Suntha, Theodoric's sister and mother of Amalaric, who will take control as queen regent. So, pretty cool. Until next time, the king is dead. Long live the queen.